Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of May 15th. And what we're going to be ranting about tonight should be kind of obvious and inevitable, given what we are once again witnessing um, massive aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip and uh, violence rapidly spreading not only throughout the West Bank, but now throughout Israel as well. The death toll in Gaza has now um, approached 200, precisely 197. At the moment, according to the latest uh, news reports, including at least 58 children, the Israeli death toll stands at 10. There's an extremely disturbing sense of deja vu to all of this. Now, there are ongoing it doesn't even make the headlines anymore, but uh, virtually on a permanent basis, there are ongoing sporadic airstrikes on Gaza, which seem to happen every few months. But every few years, they are punctuated by uh, you know massive campaigns of aerial bombardment. We witnessed um, Operation Cast Lead in 2008, and Operation Protective Edge in 2014, I'm not even sure if they've given this one a name yet, uh, but uh, this one in some ways feels disturbingly different. Now, in each of those, you know, I mean, conditions in Gaza become more and more, you know, untenable for uh, for, for human life, and uh, you know, more and more bad karma is accrued in the uh, in the conflict, so to speak, which um, you know has been giving me the sense that you know things are approaching a tipping point. And this time, uh, you know, inevitably, things are approaching a, a tipping point where they are not going to be able to walk it back with a ceasefire, as has been the case in the past. And, uh, you know, especially given that this time, for the first time, Jewish-Palestinian communal violence uh, within Israel itself this time uh, gives a sense that, you know, things really may be going over the edge. And those of us, uh, you know, in the, uh, the outside world, especially those of us here in the United States the country that pays the bills for Israel, uh, we have to think very carefully about, um, about what we do and we say about this situation. And there is one line which I am hearing from Joe Biden in the White House, all the way down to uh, you know a lot of my friends on Facebook and so on, that um, Israel has a right to defend itself, which um, sounds superficially plausible but with a big emphasis on the superficially. And if you examine that line just a little bit, it is an exercise in obfuscation and in justification for war crimes. And beyond that, it is confusing the aggrieved party with the oppressor. Let's start by talking about war crimes. Earlier this year, the International Criminal Court at The Hague opened an investigation into possible war crimes in earlier eruptions of the conflict. And the uh, top prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, has just issued a statement warning parties to the conflict that this investigation is open and that they could be held accountable for the ordering, commission, and complicity with war crimes. The Israeli human rights group, Bet Salem, just today issued a statement flatly accusing the Israeli government of war crimes. The statement is entitled, you can Google it, quote, 
killing blockaded civilians and destroying infrastructure on a massive scale, colon, Israel is committing war crimes in the Gaza Strip, end quote. It should be noted that the Israeli government is um, flatly rejecting the authority of the International Criminal Court in this investigation and refusing to cooperate. Betzalem and other human rights groups within Israel have issued a statement of their own inviting the International Criminal Court to cooperate with them rather than the Israeli government with Israeli independent human rights groups in the investigation. Now, it should be acknowledged that the ICC investigation is not only looking at Israel, but also Hamas, the ruling authority in the Gaza Strip, and the possibility that their leaders as well have been responsible for war crimes. But it must also be acknowledged that these two sides are not guilty of war crimes or even capable of war crimes by mere access to weaponry and technology to remotely the same degree. And it is not merely a question of the lack of equivalency in the magnitude of their respective crimes, but again, a question of which side is the aggrieved party and which side is the oppressor. And merely pointing out or portraying it as if, uh, you know, Hamas started this whole thing by firing rockets into Israel, as if this had come out of nowhere, is completely disingenuous. First, let's uh, talk about the A word, the first of two hot button words, which we're going to be grappling with, apartheid. This whole affair blew up just a couple of weeks after Human Rights Watch on April 27th issued a report accusing Israeli authorities of crimes against humanity, specifically those of apartheid and persecution targeting the Palestinian people. The report charges that there is, quote, an overarching Israeli government policy to mitigate what Israeli authorities openly described as a, quote, demographic threat, unquote, from the Palestinians. The report is entitled A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution, citing the 1973 International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of Crime of Apartheid and the 1998 um, Rome Statute, which um, established the International Criminal Court. This comes uh, just a few weeks after, once again, the Israeli human rights group Betzalem issued a report with the provocative title, quote, This is Apartheid, a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, unquote. It documents the systematic discrimination against Palestinians in the spheres of land, citizenship, freedom of movement, and political participation on both sides of the Green Line, which separates Israel proper from the occupied West Bank. Uh, this report also echoes the 2017 findings of the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. In its report, Israeli practices toward the Palestinian people and the question of apartheid. But uh, the fact that this time the comparison between Zionism and South African apartheid is being made by an Israeli organization, Betzalem, poses a challenge to the increasingly entrenched dogma in mainstream discourse in the West that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism.
And uh, just by way of pointing out how um, inured we have all become to the ongoing institutionalized violence against the Palestinians here in the West, I'm just going to point out that uh, I'm just going to recall that uh, yesterday, May 14th, was the third anniversary of a massacre of Palestinian protesters on the border of the Gaza Strip, which is almost entirely forgotten. May 14th, 2018, at least 55 Palestinians were killed and more than 2,700 injured along the eastern borders of the Gaza Strip as Israeli army snipers opened fire on March of Return protesters. That was a... um, series of ongoing protests on the Gaza border, which were launched that year, 2018, at least raising the aspiration for the residents of the, you know, extremely, you know, overcrowded and blockaded Gaza Strip, where, as I say, life is simply becoming increasingly untenable, to return to the lands in Israel proper from which they were cleansed in 1948. The two million residents under blockade in Gaza since 2014 are facing not only material deprivation, but the uh, terrifying depletion and contamination of their aquifer, which means that they're almost entirely dependent on the outside world for water. Now, the entire Middle East is aridifying at a terrifying rate, and scientists are already warning that, you know, a few generations from now, the entire region may be unlivable. But this reality is imminent in Gaza. And again, practically forgotten, but, you know, adding insult to the injury is the reality, which certainly the Gazans themselves are acutely aware of, that the inhabitants of the Strip themselves, or their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, were cleansed, ethnically cleansed from lands within what is now Israel in 1948. Jerusalem. Let's not forget that Hamas launched its rockets in response to the escalation which we've just witnessed uh, in in Jerusalem over the past weeks, where Israel is planning to evict several Palestinian families from a neighborhood by the name of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, and protest about this in the midst of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, finally escalated to clashes at Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, or the Temple Mount, as it's known to the Jews, with some 250 Palestinians wounded in a raid by the riot police on the compound on the night of uh, May 9th, which is what finally tipped things over the edge into the hurling of missiles back and forth. The eviction orders of these uh, families in the Sheikh Jarrah district were issued at the behest of Jewish settler organizations who claimed that the lands in question were owned by Jews before 1948 when Jordanian authorities settled uprooted Palestinians there. And these settler organizations purporting to represent the former Jewish owners are invoking Israel's 1970 Law on Legal and Administrative Affairs, which stipulates that Jews who lost their holdings in East Jerusalem in 1948 can reclaim their property, which is rather perverse on the face of it. I mean, yes, some of these East Jerusalem properties may have been owned by Jews who were driven out in the war in 1948, the Palestinians who settled there, who were settled there by the Jordanian authorities, who then controlled it, as they did until 1967, were themselves driven out of their lands in what became Israel. 
So the families who were living in Shikshara are themselves refugees or the descendants of refugees who were already uprooted from their lands back in 1948 and are now to be uprooted a second time if these evictions uh, move ahead. It's pending in the Israeli courts now. Palestinian refugees, including their descendants, their children and grandchildren, and I suppose by this point it might be up to great-grandchildren, all registered by the United Nations as Palestinian refugees, now number more than 1.5 million in Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, and Jordan, for the most part. The Palestinians in East Jerusalem, which had been controlled by Jordan until the War of 1967, when it was unilaterally annexed by Israel, are by and large, something like 90% of them, denied Israeli citizenship and the right to vote in Israeli elections through various Jim Crow-type legal artifices. And now Israel is also denying them to vote in Palestinian Authority elections, which means they are denied the franchise altogether in either sovereignty, Israel or Palestine. And this is the policy of the state which prides itself on being the only democracy in the Middle East, quote, unquote, and almost forgotten, again, <laughs> a reality which is almost forgotten, is that Jerusalem, which both sides are claiming as its capital, the Palestinians ultimately seeking to establish their capital in East Jerusalem, and Israel, you know, claiming that the entire city is its capital, it is nearly forgotten that under General Assembly Resolution 181 of November 29, 1947, which established the state of Israel, Jerusalem was supposed to be a unified city under international administration and not a part of Israel, nor a part of the planned Palestinian Arab state. It was supposed to be an international city under UN administration where the two sides, the two peoples, could coexist without either claiming sovereignty. So I will point out that technically, under international law, all of Jerusalem, not only East Jerusalem, but also West Jerusalem, is a legally occupied territory. Of course, on the West Bank, we see the ongoing theft of lands, destruction of villages by the Israeli Defense Forces, or Israeli occupation forces, as they may more accurately be called, ongoing colonization and harassment by illegal settlers, violent attacks, the uprooting and burning of ancient olive trees. This is merely quotidian. It goes on every day. And it's only the human rights observers and journalists on the ground and those with a special interest in the matter who even pay any attention to it. Quoting once again from the Israeli human rights group Bet Salem from a report they uh, issued last March, March 26, 2020, quote, scores of farming shepherding communities home to thousands of Palestinians dot the 60% of the West Bank designated as Area C, that is under direct Israeli administration. For decades, Israeli authorities have pursued a policy aimed at driving out these communities by making living conditions intolerable in an attempt to get residents to leave, ostensibly of their own volition. 
This unlawful conduct is motivated by the political ambition publicly stated by various officials to establish facts on the ground and take over these areas in a de facto annexation that would facilitate actual annexation to Israel as a part of a final status arrangement, end quote. And once again, of course, <coughs> Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, who's been clinging to power despite all the scandals mounting against him for years now, has been boasting of his plans openly to annex portions or all of the West Bank. And even within Israel, Palestinians are allowed the right to vote, at least, but are systematically discriminated against in access to land and housing. And this is written into the fundamental laws and doctrines of the state of Israel. The Israeli Land Authority was explicitly established for the settlement of Jews. And in recent years, we've seen numerous instances of so-called unpermitted or unrecognized Palestinian Bedouin villages being destroyed in the Negev Desert in Israel's south to make way for housing developments explicitly intended for Jews. And the entire notion of, you know, an unrecognized or unpermitted village is certainly a perverse irony in light of the upwards of 100 Jewish settlements on the West Bank that are clearly illegal under international law. And many of these Bedouin in the Negev are, in fact, being denied the right to vote, and in recent years have been facing a wave of so-called citizenship cancellations, with authorities changing their status by fiat from citizen to resident on the basis of, uh, you know, missing family documents, despite the fact that the Bedouin have lived in the Negev basically forever. So I do not see how anybody can take a realistic and dispassionate look at the situation in Gaza, in Jerusalem, on the West Bank, and in Israel proper, and deny that it constitutes apartheid, which I will point out is not merely a reference to the system of racial segregation that existed in South Africa. That's the origin of the term. But today, it is actually a crime against humanity recognized by the United Nations. It is a class of international crime. And this is the reality which is being obscured when you echo this empty line that Israel has the right to defend itself. If Israel has the right to defend itself, the Palestinians also have the right to defend themselves. Examine your double standards. Okay, so uh, that was the first hot button word, the A word. Now we're going to move on to an even hotter one, the G word, genocide. A word which, um, you know, I tried to treat with the utmost respect, and uh, I have become, you know, increasingly alarmed in recent years at how politicized the use of the term genocide has become. And one really dangerous aspect of this is that um, in this rush, this unseemly rush to make either accusations or exculpations 
of genocide, it is often forgotten that oppression and persecution can stop short of genocide and still demand our protest. This is the you know the oft forgotten reality in this you know politicized use of the G word. Something can be really really bad, and urgently demand action and protest, while not crossing the line into genocide. Now I want to point out a perhaps obvious double standard that the the same U.S. government, which is defending Israel's so-called right to defend itself, officially considers China's persecution of the Uyghurs to be genocide. Now, mind you, just because the United States government is saying this and it's got a hypocritical position on the matter doesn't mean that it isn't true. Let me start by emphasizing that. Now, simply because I use the word genocide with uh, reluctance, and it's a word which I treat with great respect, you know, I've been um, a little bit hesitant to call the persecution of the Uyghurs genocide, even as, you know, I've been raising what voice I can on my website and my podcast and so on to protest the mass detention, which certainly represents an escalation on the ladder toward genocide at a minimum. With the recent uh, revelations of mass coercive sterilization of Uyghur women, in the detention camps, I am more open to the notion that, in fact, it is currently crossing the line into genocide. Then there's the question of Syria, which, ironically, nobody does call genocide, for reasons I do not entirely understand. Now, uh, you know, a lot of um, free Syria activists, with whom I've been working for the past several years since the revolution began in Syria, almost exactly 10 years ago, have been calling the situation there genocide. And again, I've been a little bit reluctant. Despite the massive aerial bombardment, the serial use of chemical weapons, and the mass detention of opponents of the regime. But again, given the revelations of the past couple of years, the last few years, of an actual campaign of extermination within the Assad regime's detention camps, detention gulag, with perhaps 100,000 killed or disappeared, and despite the vile fiction that the Assad regime is secular, clearly Sunni Muslims have been targeted, I again have come around to acknowledging that there is, in fact, a genocide underway in Syria. And I'm hearing the word being um, invoked again in some circles in relation to Gaza and Palestine. How legitimate is this? First, let's take a look at what genocide actually is. I'm going to read from the, uh, the page on the United Nations website in which genocide is defined. Quote, the word genocide was first coined by Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin in 1944 in his book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. It consists of the Greek prefix genos, meaning race or tribe, and the Latin suffix side, meaning killing. Lemkin developed the term partly in response to the Nazi policies of systematic murder of Jewish people, 
during the Holocaust, but also in response to previous instances in history of targeted actions aimed at the destruction of particular groups of people. Later on, Raphael Lemkin led the campaign to have genocide recognized and codified as an international crime. Genocide was first recognized as a crime under international law in 1946 by uh, United Nations General Assembly Resolution. It was codified as an independent crime in the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, or Genocide Convention, the text of which reads, and I'll quote within a quote, this is the UN page on genocide prevention, quoting the text of the Genocide Convention. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The intent is the most difficult element to determine. To constitute genocide, there must be a proven intent on the part of perpetrators to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Cultural destruction does not suffice, nor does an intention to simply disperse a group. Importantly, the victims of genocide are deliberately targeted, not randomly, because of their real or perceived membership in one of the four groups protected under the convention, which excludes political groups, for example. This means that the target of destruction must be the group as such, and not its members as individuals. Genocide can also be committed against only a part of the group, as long as that part is identifiable, including within a geographically limited area, and substantial. End quote, end quote. A quote from the uh, text of the Genocide Convention, which uh, appears in a quote, a larger quote that I read from the <clears throat> United Nations webpage on genocide prevention. Now, obviously, a lot of this, particularly where the question of intent is concerned, is open to interpretation and debate by legal scholars. But I think certainly the case can be made that the conditions of life which are being imposed on the geographically limited area of Gaza are at the very least approaching what may be called genocide. And the word approaching is key here. This is not by any means aimed towards dismissal or minimization. Robert J. Lifton, in his writings on the final solution, refers to a, quote, genocidal threshold, the point at which mass murder becomes legitimized, allowing the step from image to act. And there is no doubt in my mind that this process, at least, has been underway in Israel for quite a few years now, with terms such as demographic threat, quote unquote, population transfer, quote unquote, being bandied about by politicians while hoodlums in the street 
less euphemistically chant death to Arabs. So ethnic cleansing and perhaps genocidal solutions are being legitimized in mainstream political discourse in Israel. And again, there is certainly a good case to be made that at least within the geographically limited area of Gaza, Israel is inflicting on the Palestinians conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction in whole or in part. Israel has been approaching a genocidal threshold for many years and may be arriving at that threshold now. But again, I'll leave up to the, uh, the legal scholars and the historians, the legal scholars now and the historians after the fact, to argue about whether or not it is genocide yet, or whether or not Israel has crossed or is crossing that threshold. What is clear is that it is escalating towards that, and that people everywhere around the world have an urgent responsibility to protest it, unequivocally and forthrightly. And especially those of us here in the United States, the country that underwrites Israel's military prowess, and especially those of us with Jewish last names, in whose names and interest Israel purports to act. Especially for us, silence is complicity, and it may in fact be complicity with genocide. Now, I make no claim to having any easy answers. And I don't want anybody to ask me, okay, what's your peace plan, Weinberg? What do you suggest? Because I don't have one. And having one is not a prerequisite for speaking up against actual war crimes and an actual approach to a genocidal threshold. But as a general principle, pointing in the direction that we should be aspiring toward, in spite of everything, I will close by quoting the words of the late Palestinian scholar and intellectual freedom fighter, Edward Said, who wrote in 1999, quote, I see no other way than to begin now to speak about sharing the land that has thrust us together and sharing it in a truly democratic way with equal rights for each citizen. There can be no reconciliation unless both peoples, two communities of suffering, resolve that their existence is a secular fact and that it has to be dealt with as such. End quote. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.